Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey Squash players, hope everyone is doing really well out there and having a positive mind for all the stuff that the world and life is throwing at us at the moment. So where to start with my next guest? Well, maybe the fact that she's been referred to as one of the top all-time greatest squash players ever is a good place to go. Uh, not only in squash, she has been referred to as one of the best athletes of all time, both in regard to men and women. So I have got the legend herself, Sarah Fitzgerald, on the show today. You know, squash royalty, we're talking the best of the best. And if we look at her CV, it just speaks absolute volumes. So she currently resides in Melbourne, Australia. She has won five World Open titles. That is five. So she's been world champion five times. So to be able to have this conversation with her and a five-time world champion is, is just an absolute treat. She also obtained two British Open titles. She was a gold medalist in the singles at the 2002 Commonwealth Games in Manchester, which I was lucky enough to play in myself and, and observe her winning. So again, being a young fan, seeing her at that at those games was, was brilliant. And now to be able to sit and have this chat with her is just a, an absolute honor for me. 
So according to my counting, she's won 65 tour titles in her professional career, and she held the number one spot in the world for almost three and a half years. In 2004, she was awarded the Member of the Order of Australia for achievements in squash. To cap it all off and massively deserved, she was inducted into the, the Sport Australia Hall of Fame in 2010. She still competes and plays at Masters events around the world, and she has claimed her fourth title in the last World Masters Open. So you can just imagine where this conversation goes, really trying to understand and get deep with the idea of the mindset, what's contributed to her success over the years, winning so many titles, being world champion five times, two-time British Open champion. So yeah, a very curious and in-depth conversation with Sarah Fitzgerald, and it's quite surprising what comes out of this. Uh, she was, we, we reflect a lot back at her younger days and the influence that her parents had on her and the way that her mother would insist that she goes and thanks the tournament organizers, tournament referees, and then writes them letters afterwards as well. And at 20 years of age, she was the president of Whisper, which is now the PSA, but the Women's International Squash Players Association. And at such a young age to be put up as president is, is just phenomenal. And we go into a lot of detail about how behavior, manners, attitude, the ability to communicate contributed massively to her mental toughness, to her mental success. And she does put a lot of it down to her early upbringing and the way she was taught to treat others and treat the world. Grew up in a very sporty family and, and had access to squash courts and sport all the time. So this obviously has a massive contributory factor to her mental toughness and her ability to play the sport at such a high level. We go on to discuss topics such as visualization, mental toughness, our inner voice, the stories we tell ourselves, how to, how to compete at that high level and, and when maybe doubts and fears come in and what she tells herself when she's on the precipice of winning these massive world titles and massive tournaments that she won throughout her career. So I think you're going to take a lot out of this conversation between myself and Sarah Fitzgerald. Sarah Fitzgerald, welcome to the Squash Mind podcast series. How are you keeping? Uh, keeping pretty good, doing all right for an old girl. And I know you said I'm not to say that, but it's, it's true. I'm getting on. Oh, come on. Like, yeah, seeing how active you are in, in, in the world. And I know obviously COVID restrictions, probably not as active as before. But no, listen, thank you for jumping on this chat with me. Um, we we met each other, what do we say, maybe 15 odd years ago at a summer camp in Washington. I think we got on pretty well. We had a good laugh and stuff and, you know, spoken on social media a little bit over the years. And it's just great to have this opportunity to to chat to you. But I think a good place to start is, um, could you tell us where, where in the world you are and what you've been doing since your professional retirement in 2003? Uh, well, basically, yeah, I retired in 2003. And then I spent um, about three years just doing the fun stuff that I couldn't do when I was a player. And I went to tournaments like the Dubai Threes. And I, I went and played squash in Alaska, um, <laughs> went to Hong Kong for a few things. I went to South Africa for the um, Jarvis and Kaplan Cup, had a ball. Uh, and then finally it was like, right, time to move home. So I, I moved home to Australia. Um, somewhere along the way I met my my now husband and he's a builder and then just an opportunity came up to get into squash court building and it was like a match made in heaven. I had the squash connections. I know 
huge amount of people obviously in Australia and been to so many venues out here in Australia and Oceania and him he's the builder and um, it made sense and that's what I do now I build and renovate squash courts nice that's uh, a great little period between Aussie maybe settling down and and um, and and finishing your professional career and I'm, I'm so glad to hear you did play Jarvis captain that is such a such a great tournament isn't it unfortunately oh yeah. no oh, which team did you play for uh, KwaZulu Natal, and it was up at uh, Peter Maritzburg. Brilliant, oh, amazing. And just in regard to your the squash court and the squash court building, you know, we're we're so aware of, of what's happening in squash in the world now, and you know, less and less people playing, and and there's a bit of a drain on it. How are you finding it in Australia? Building courts is there is there activity for it? Is there an appetite for it? It's been something that's really interesting, and and doing what we're doing. Um, we would like to basically take a little bit of credit for it that we've maybe brought a bit of faith back into the industry. Nice. Uh, there's been a couple of, I'll call it cowboys, but there's also people that aren't specialists at it. So, you know, they've just gone and employed at the local renderer to render the wall and six months later it all falls out and there's mm. no guarantee they won't come back and fix it. So we, uh, we started um, about six years ago and basically the first year we did one job with six courts. The second year we did a job with five courts. The third year we did seven jobs for the year. And, some you know, four of them, three, five of them were renovations and two were building. Mm-hmm. Uh, then by the fourth year we had um, seven jobs in six months. Nice. And, you know, I'm, we're getting phone calls and emails constantly and the thing that's happening here in Australia and I would say it's the same in the UK and you know probably in South Africa every town every every suburb of the big cities had squash courts uh they're all built in the 70s they're all hardbacks they're old um and here in Australia it was you know land value uh the courts were old Mm. people didn't in the 70s you could open the door and people would walk in uh, these days, you've got to work harder at that. You can't just expect someone's going to walk in off the street. You've got to do your social media. You've got to upgrade the courts. You've got to talk to the people. And, you know, so a lot of the old stuff's being ripped down. Um, but we're busy renovating and and building. So, you know, we're starting to get a bit more modernised. But mm. we lost thousands of people. We lost hundreds of courts. Um, I think in this country, the country towns um, will help resurrect the game again. It'll start in the country and come back to the cities. And mind you, we've built courts in the cities. Right now we're building two courts at a quite an exclusive club in Melbourne. Um, and I think you, the thing is people don't have a lot of time on their hands anymore. They want something to, they want to have their sport and be active and it's short, sharp, get in, get out. Mm. Squash is perfect for that. And I think people are discovering it again, how it's such an amazing workout in 45 minutes and you're done. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, it sounds like, you know, to have someone like you driving that, you know, gives me a lot of hope and, and uh, yeah, a lot of um, positive vibe for the future. And like you said, yeah, it, it, it's almost the perfect sport, you know, p- the, with the world we live in, quick, fast distractions, people are all over the place. Hey, 30, 40 minutes of squash, man, you get in and out. That's only going to be a good thing. So hopefully we might see that 
resurgence again and and maybe it's a way and you know there's a constant debates going of like how do we market it better how do we make get more eyeballs on the sport and you know i think there's a lot of smart people out there and you know hopefully you included with the building side of things would would hopefully grow that game a little bit more but um let's let's go back a few steps let's let's reflect um a little bit on Look, your career is just, it's phenomenal. You know, you 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 do get put up as as one of the all-time great sports people, not, not even just squash, not even female squash. We're talking sports athletes of all time. So I want to reflect back as a child. Were you sporty as a child? I'm the youngest of six. Okay. Uh, my mum was Australian champion squash player and Victorian champion. Um, she played tennis first. And was pretty good at tennis, but in Melbourne, our weather can be a bit hot and cold. So, you know, when it would rain, and back then there were no indoor tennis courts, it was just grass. Um, when it rained, the tennis players went indoor and played squash. And um, back then the swing wasn't the heavy top spin that it is now. It's a bit more Roger Federer, which is that beautiful classic yeah. style. And um, mum found this game really interesting. Uh, she was able to adapt to it. Next thing you know, she kept playing, was Australian champion. So somewhere along the way, she ran a squash venue. All six kids had to go down there, clean the courts, you know, sweep the courts. They played on them. They worked behind the desk. I was the one that took to it. I I absolutely loved it. I um, And it's no disrespect to tennis, but my first ever tennis tournament, it was 35 degrees, flies, stinking hot on a Saturday the Sunday was 20 degrees, raining, blowing a gale. And, you know, I'm, I'm sunburnt the first day. I'm cold the next day. And I was just, and at that age, when you're 10 and 12, you spend more time picking up the tennis balls rather than hitting them. So, and if you can't serve and get it over the net, you haven't even got a rally, right? So, gosh, it didn't matter how bad you hit it. The thing hit walls and kind of came back. And, um, I just I was fascinated by all the angles and um, and obviously with mum I had good access and people to hit with. Well, that's it's so interesting you say that. Um, speaking with Nick Mackey, he was very big into his tennis before he converted more to squash, and he said similar things, maybe slightly different in Sheffield, driving up and down the country. Um, obviously rain everywhere. He would play his match and then sit in the car with his dad for hours on end, go on play a match in the rain, not really interact with kids. And Nick Matthew turned around and said, well, squash is so much more of this social environment. It's indoors. And, and you know, he said he went more to it because of that. Definitely the indoor side and the, the, the interaction with the kids. And same, I think he alluded to the fact that, yeah, the rallies are really rubbish in tennis. And, and you know, squash was way better than that. But can you talk about being the youngest of six? What That, you know, that, that must have been amazing or difficult. My husband reckons I was spoiled rotten. I was the little you know princess but um I think uh you know the eldest sibling my sister ended up also partly being a mother before a time because my mum was busy running the the center my dad was working full-time you have to when you got six kids you got to pay for them all um but yeah we were all doing sports so two brothers played um Australian rules football but we we all had a crack at all sports um my sister was a good tennis player and uh, thank God for grandparents who would uh, pick us up from school and ferry us around to all the different sports and, and really contribute. Um, I was fortunate enough to grow up opposite um, parks, parkland. There were three football ovals. Um, 
you know, and I grew up with kids that went to, that were one of 13. So I thought six was big, but there were kids that had bigger families. And, but with the noise and the kids and the people and the dog and the cat and every other animal we had, if it got noisy, mum and dad would just boot us outside to the park. So our whole life was sport, mm-hmm. outdoors, um, interacting with other kids, mixture of being in a team, individual sports, and we all just gravitated to, you know, different different sports, different paced sports, and, um, you know, we did everything from swimming to gymnastics to squash and tennis. So, yeah. um, Really, like, you know, you see these emergence now of these academies and these real specialist sporting environments, and it's so structured and so drilled and so routine. And, you know, obviously it does produce success, but I love that multi-sport facility or the multi-sport way you learn your skills, you learn your interactions, you learn how to communicate and adapt and how then that spills into your performances later on. And, you know, you've got these Unfortunately, these parents are very, you know, they, they see this academy, a football academy, tennis academy, right? Sign your kid up at 10 years old and they're going to be hitting thousands of balls. And you know what? They don't get to play any other sports. And so, so where would you or what would you say to a, a parent of a, of a younger child that's maybe thinking about specializing their kid at a certain point? Uh, I remember reading it or seeing it or something. Even Roger Federer was saying a kid should do a bunch of sports before you... Exactly. push them, for want of a better word, push, uh, direct them a certain way. Um, I, I do know, like, for instance, my mum, she put us into all sports and then every, I don't know, six months, year, she'd say, do you still want to do this? And if, if at any time I got a bit, um, oh, you know, I want to go hang out with my friends and I don't want to do that, there's, there's two things you do is ask me if I wanted to keep going with it and two, remind me, for instance, if I'd signed up to play pennant, as you call it in the UK league, she'd say, you've signed up to that. You made an agreement. You are, it's a responsibility. You fulfill that responsibility. You get through the season and then you make your choice. But do not sign up for that and tell me you want to do it. And then halfway through, you you pull a pin on it. Yeah. So two elements of it was she'd keep checking that I wanted to do it. And... Um, I remember her distinctly asking me, do you want to play? And I think it was just when I was 12 and I had a bit of a hissy fit about something. And, and then she, she just asked me and I remember I sat down for a bit and I had a good think about it. And I went, no, I think you need a squash player because everyone else in my family had gone to a different sport. And I said, I think you need a squash player. But I realized later on, it's not that she needed it. I loved it. Mm. And I was fascinated by the sport. Mm. And, um, so with any parent, absolutely. I mean, like every parent, certainly in this country, should teach their children how to swim. Um, so throw them in the pool, throw them into a sport like squash or soccer. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, they're going to work out, do they want to do up and down looking at a black line? Do they fit into a team environment? Have they got the personality for a team? Or you work out what sport it is. Are they an individual? And I worked out, I guess I needed the individual because then it was only me to blame if I won, lost or drew drew a match, whatever I did, you know, any poor behaviour was back on me. It wasn't, I couldn't be upset with a team member who stuffed up or something. 
listen you saying that is is such such great advice and 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 I just the way you put it across brilliant you know whether it's a, a repetitive type sport like swimming whether it's the team sport or whether individual but it does sound like your 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 mother hit the sweet spot in regard to there was a nurturing aspect but there was also a aspect where there's a commitment and a push and you know there's there's a great book called grit by angela duckworth and she she looks at successful people and they said that they said the parents that make their child fulfill an obligation is so powerful, not to the point of where they, you know, are crying and they never want to do. We're not talking years. They're talking over the course of say two terms, two school terms going, right. You know what you you've committed for this length. You have to see that through, but equally so there's a lot of a checking in process as in actually, are you enjoying it? Do you want to do this? So yeah. And, and that's, that's a big part of the, the environment or the studies that I'm looking to do at the moment. So, um, it's just great to hear that you were in that environment. And maybe that leads me on to my next bit of a question going or talking about the nature nurture debate, you know, was, was it your environments that led to, and I'm going to use a bit of a mental toughness sway here was, was your environment led you to stronger mental toughness, or do you think you had an ingrained ability to be mentally tough? I think it was a little bit ingrained for me and I, good question. Cause I, as we talk, memories might come back but you know I remember uh, we used to have these junior awards called the eagle awards and it was a bronze silver and gold and you know when you're 10 the basic uh, to get the bronze one of the elements was maybe you had to hit a straight drive and have it bounce in the box 10 times in a row forehand backhand there was a particular way you had to serve things like that for silver it was you had to get the ball to bounce or or stand and volley it 10 times in a row and the figure eight on the bounce. For gold, it was figure eight volley. You had to be able to drive up and down the wall. Uh, maybe it was 10 times, whatever. So, you know, it, it set you a task and I wanted to complete that task because I wanted to get the gold. I, I went through all the learning phase. I've got my bronze and I'm like, that was pretty cool. Got the silver, you know, eventually got my gold. And then, of course, I remember one of the first times mum was teaching me how to get a drive out of the back corner because I was young and the racket's enormous and I'm a skinny little thing and I could only boast it out. That's all I had the ability and mental capacity to understand. If the ball goes there, I'm going to boast that out. So we had to learn how to drive it out. When I couldn't get it, I would stomp my feet, I'd have a tantrum, I got it. And then the first time I got it right, I could, I'm like, wow, that is amazing. I got to do that again. Nice. And of course, I stomp it up the second time. Then I'm, <clears throat> and, but it made me want to keep going until I got it right. So there's an element of wanting to achieve, wanting to get it right. I don't, my personality is I don't like letting people down. For instance, like if you, asked me to do something and I said sure I'll be there at eight o'clock if I'm late I'll apologize profusely but I'll turn up I wouldn't just not show mm. that sort of personality as well that's me yeah um, and yeah look probably my environment helped I, I made commitments um and there was the obligation to fulfill those commitments so yeah. a bit internal of who I am I think was was a very important yeah. factor I don't know if this is um, more of an Australian thing, but I, but I recently heard a great podcast with Hugh Jackman on, and he was talking about his upbringing and, and his father and stuff. And his father was of that 
attitude. And it just reminded me of something, as you said it there, if you've committed to have a drink with your neighbor, you know, you go have the drink with your neighbor. If the queen calls and says, come to Buckingham Palace, no, you let the queen down because you've committed to seeing your neighbor. You do that first and you say, I'm going to do that later. And he talked a lot about his, his, um, what he was exposed to as a child from his parents and, and that commitment attitude and that follow through with your obligations was so powerful. And yeah, I just love that. And again, reflecting maybe slightly, you know, growing up in Africa, we had a lot of that as well, that idea of like, no, you, you stick to your word and, you know, hope, well, I say hopefully, but, but maybe that also lent itself when you got a bit old and started competing at high levels that that possibly had a bit of a mental toughness aspect to it. What do you think on that? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the other thing my mum taught me was um, be respectful as well. And I think it's just an age thing and an era thing. You know, we're a uh, Catholic family, for want of a better word. So, you know, it was the commitment to going to Mass on Sundays. It was uh, respect for your brothers and sisters in the house. It was, um, you know, mum and dad were very much, you know, I'm going to pick you up at you know, you got to come home at 10 o'clock. No worries. If you weren't, they were out the front. They were out the front waiting to pick you up. There's no getting away with that stuff. And that's an era thing as well. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of that, you know, it carries through from a kid. And I'm not saying parents are doing a bad job or anything today, but things are dealt with differently. It is so different. You know, the whole yes and no. Can I do that? No. Why no? And, you know, <laughs> You don't say no to kids today. It's, uh, you know, there's, they don't know what the word no is. And and the whole, you know, every kid must get a prize. Um, I have a real problem with that. And I think a whole lot of coaches of, you know, big time coaches have a problem with that attitude too. You've got to learn how to win and lose. You've got to take the tops, um, you know, the highs and the lows. And if you don't learn that, how do you learn anything in life? Well, yeah, that's the thing. I think I think sport and maybe even more so squash is such a such a great lens to transfer into life skills. And I think they, they lead and lend to each other. You know, can you can you deal with difficulties in life? Can you have a certain attitude in life that you can bring to the squash court? And you saying about manners and respect. I was lucky enough to interview um, Alistair McCaw a couple of weeks ago, and he's very big on that. He he actually on his podcast he interviewed phil neville who is the england women's football coach he's just got a job at miami now and phil neville was reflecting on sir alex ferguson so when he was with sir alex ferguson was running manchester united that was the first non-negotiable the manners were the top priority for alex ferguson they were like you walk in and there's respect there's please there's thank you and he says as soon as you instill that early on you know what you make better people and better people tend to make better athletes and i i, I just I, I i'm really big on trying to get that balance right I'm going to tell you one story. When I was a kid and I'm playing a junior tournament, so I'm playing the event, I'm hanging out with all my squash mates. Um, mum or dad, mum would say, it's time to go. And it was mainly my mum more, more so than my dad. But um, she said, it's time to go. And she said, now, have you gone and thanked, you know, Freddie and whoever that ran the event and the sponsor? And I'm like, oh, can we just go home? You know, And she goes, get in there now. She'd literally walk in beside me and take me up to the sponsor and the main organiser and I'd have to walk up, you know, a bit shy, going, thank you very much. I've had a really good time and I hope to play again next year. <laughs> then I'd go home and she'd make me write a bloody letter. <laughs> I'd write a letter as well with all the thank you, I've had a really good time and blah, 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 and then post it to them. I love the that. 
the thing is I was 12, I didn't get it, but it wasn't until I um, became 18 and went off on the professional tour did I realise what that really meant. And hence I ended up on boards and committees, my relationship with a whole bunch of tournament organisers, committee members, um, sponsors and people were was, was good. Um, always said thanks to them all. And... The only time I, I made one mistake really was I went to Germany, played, I landed, a German guy picked me up. We didn't, he couldn't speak English other than hello and goodbye. We drove like 40 minutes, got to the club, dropped me off. I went and had a practice. I saw all the squash players. I went home. Next day I got up, practiced, played my match, went back. Next day, same again, but lost. Went to the airport, same German guy, can't speak, dropped me off at the airport. I flew back to England. And my manager at the time said, um, oh, did you see, you know, blah, blah? And I went, no, I didn't. And he goes, well, who was, this, who was the sponsor? Was it blah, blah? And I went, I don't know. Okay. And he said, well, did, uh, you know, he asked me some other question. It was about three or four questions. And I, I was horrified. I didn't know the answer to one of them because all I did was turn up, speak English, talk to all the players, didn't meet anyone, knew nothing and went back. And I went, and I got my paycheck. I mean, that's terrible. And that's the beginning of me getting on committees as well. And um, because without, without the hellos, the thank yous, the respect for those people, uh, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing today. And we've had a hell of a life because of it. So uh, I think mum ingrained that into me as a kid. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Like just hearing you relive that and, and you can tell it maybe stung you a little bit in reflection and, and, and it maybe then <laughs> maybe then made you, you know, not take a different path, but just cultivate different habits and behaviors. And I, I'm such a big believer in, in you know, it, it's all about relationships in life. You know, you get so much further in life with, with good relationships and you can only foster good relationships with the manners, the respect and, and all those key aspects that we hopefully have grown up with and hopefully we can pass on to the next generation. But let's fast forward a little bit. And, you know, you're, you're playing, you're on the tour now, um, competing. I'd like to know what parts of your mindset drove you to be the success that you are? Uh, interesting was I knew in the deep, dark depths of my guts that I had an ability to, to succeed. I didn't quite know or understand what that looked like when I was younger. Um, it took it, and tragically, it took a bit too long for it to come out, but I think some of that was giving back to the sport rather than focusing on myself but I have no regrets of that, mm. um, is somewhere along the way I learned the difference between um, knowing and believing. So I knew I had a bit of talent and the ability to win stuff, but it wasn't, and it was one of those I know. People used to tell me all the time, oh, you know, I've seen you beat it. I'd beat them in practice, but I couldn't beat them in the match. But it wasn't until... I, something clicked one day and I got sick of losing or sick of not focusing on me and it was when I really, really started to believe that I could or should win that I started winning stuff. Okay. And where, where do you think that belief came from though? It's the difference between knowing and believing. Okay. And, and so let's just unpack that a little bit because, again, 
I, I, at a certain point, and you speak to other players, you, you believe something, but maybe it was a bit of a false belief. Where did you find that, that inner belief, that real true belief? Can you pinpoint that? Uh, I think it was back at Reading at my, my English club uh, at Caversham. And, um, and I think it was, I don't know, it was, I can't really pinpoint exactly why, but it was just this one day I got out of bed and it was like, I am just so sick of losing to people. I know in my heart I can, I can beat them. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, I know what it was. There was this, this one thing as well that happened to me. Um, I was in New Zealand. Uh, I remember I got this really bad toothache and I'd already had two wisdoms kind of pop through. And this, this one wisdom was starting to give me grief. And I'm like, Ugh. anyway, I got through the whole trip in New Zealand, but it was getting worse. This pain got worse. I landed and the pain was starting to come down my jaw. And it was only about a week away or so from the world's 1996 Malaysia, KL Malaysia. Anyway, I, I rang my physio who was, who was just a godsend and he said to me, this is what you've got to do. You need your wisdom out. I know enough people. He phoned a bunch of doctors and hospitals and he got me in immediately. And it's, it's amazing, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yep. He got me in. I went straight in. I had all my wisdoms pulled out. Wow. Uh, sorry, cut out, under anaesthetic. I woke up, fat face. Uh, <laughs> And I'd say it was something like four or five days later, it was like, am I flying to Malaysia for the worlds? It was like, yep, wow. I'm going to go because I didn't react too badly. Mm-hmm. The last thing I said to my sister was, I'm going to get absolutely pumped at this event. I've had a bad lead up. My head's probably shot. Um, I'm not too sure if, you know, how my teeth are. And anyway, I'll go and I'll see how it goes. I played the best squash of my life. Amazing. And I won the first world title. And that's when I think I worked out the whole controlling my mind and relaxing mm. and letting my ability come out rather than overthinking it. And because I wasn't overthinking, I just went into it so relaxed thinking I'm going to get beaten by Betty Boo over here and I played the best squash of my life. Wow. Okay. So I really want to unpack that a little bit more in time. But I want to just go back to a little thing you said there about you felt at a certain point about giving back to the game and and can you tell us when that happened at what part of your career and and how that actually then maybe affected your performance in a positive way can you reflect on that um so i was about 20 years old we were having a uh the whisper at the time it was called the women's international squash players association meeting at the british open and there was just some things going on as, you know, and it was run by the players. And um, I remember I just made some comments in the meeting and maybe I spoke up a couple of times too many because then the girls literally got behind me and pushed me up the front and said, you need to go on the board. I'm like, oh. So next thing I know, I found myself on the board. At 20 years old? Uh, at about, yeah, it was about 20 or, or wow, so years Wow, that's young, old. eh? That's really young. And the situation was the current president was stepping down and they needed someone to fill that position. And I was sort of, I think I was 20. I may have been a bit older. They were pushing me to step up and do the presidency. I said, no way. I said, look how young I am. And, you yeah, know, anyway, as it turned out, about a year later, I ended up um, 
chair chair and president for the next 10 years. So um wow. And so yeah. that's that's a huge thing to take on board. Again, massively admirable you do that. You know, you're focusing on a career, you know, probably you have intentions of, you know, winning world opens and world number one, which you obviously did. But then to add that layer on, like to a lot of people, that might have seemed the burden too far and just a, an, an extra thing. But would you say doing that also assisted some of your performances later on? Uh it interesting. Um that some of the negatives workers in that era, there weren't email and, and um, internet, it was faxes. And, you know, because I was a travelling squash player, when I went home to Australia, I had to have the fax machine in my room, otherwise it was waking up the rest of the house. So I've got the fax going off at three in the morning, it wakes me up, my curiosity got the better of me, I go and read that stuff. But I think it taught me how to have some form of discipline as well of attending to that work getting my training done and trying to still prioritize the squash and the training mm. and still make my commitment to it so mm. I think and I'm a bit of a routine person anyway I, I like a, a bit of a flow through I can't just pick up a racket and go have a hit and then I'm like ah, I won't play today and I'll go over a hit of some other sport and then come back I, I can't I like my regimented routine so I think I was able to get through that a lot. But, you know, it, it also, um, I, I guess it was the whole, you know, respect dealing with people. There was mm. elements of I was able to include that in my routine, go and mm. say hello to the tournament sponsor, go practice. And then, of course, they they ended up, you know, wanting me to win and supporting me because they, yeah. they ended up great people. So, mm. like, when I won Com Games Manchester, um you know, I'd, I'd done, I'd been doing this work and I'd been spending time at Pontefract. All the Pontefract crew and Manchester crew were cheering for me. They're English cheering for me <laughs> at the games. I mean, and that's the sort of relationships you ended yeah. up with. How, how, how awesome is that to hear that? You know, it sounds like whether by accident or by design that you were working on some serious character development traits, you know, doing this stuff. And, you know, you were cultivating this this better person off the court and it does sound like it then transferred and translated to some of your successes so um i want to go a little bit more into maybe maybe some of the more dedicated practices on your mental side before we started recording you you said that you you went through a different few different ways that you worked on your mental side so can you talk on this did you did you set aside dedicated time for the mind and 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 how did this look for you uh there were a couple of things and one of this is the one that i worked out myself one day where for instance I'd, I'd played someone and I'd lost and I'm like I know I can beat them and maybe I'd beaten them a week before just in league but I lost to them in the tournament or something and in the end I just came up with discovering something for myself where because I there was I can't remember the event or whatever but I desperately wanted to win it and do well and I, I just ended up saying to myself if I took my my one of my Practice partners was a fellow called Rick Weatherall. Mm. He was a regular at Cavisham. He was a great mate and more than happy he always wanted to hit with me. So Ricky and I would hit all the time. And in the end, I realised I was playing my best squash back at Cavisham in my relaxed home base. And in the end, I don't know, I could be playing the world championship or some event somewhere, and I'm like, Sarah, Take yourself back to playing Ricky at Cavisham. 
and I could feel it one day, literally I could see it. I was closing my eyes and I could feel I went, and I took this stress off me of I must win, I must beat this person, you know, it's going to feel terrible if I lose. And I just took it back and I, I was able to capture a little bit of imagery in my head of me hitting with Ricky at Caversham. And the other thing I learned out of that was if I play to the best of my ability, the result will come. Mm-hmm. And rather than me going, you know, I'm, I'm number one and everyone's trying to beat me type thing, it's like if I play to the best of my ability, I will win because mm-hmm. I am the number one. They have to beat me. I'm not going out there to defend. I'm going out there to win. And I just sort of, and I, I know in mindset world, those things have been around for a long time, but everyone has to learn them their own way and adapt them to themselves somehow in their own words or their own time or whatever that is. Mm. And they were my ways of doing it. Mm. And yeah, like it sounds like the, the the timing of when you did it was quite important. Like maybe if you'd done that as a younger person or like, it might not have worked. So like you said, you've got to discover your own way. But I also think there's, you know, sometimes... 15, 16 year olds aren't willing to listen to, right, you've got to do visualization and mindfulness and goal setting. You know, you tell that to a 15, 16 year old, it's maybe the wrong time. You know, you can introduce them and try to open the door, but that same conversation with a 23 year old might be completely different. So yeah, I think, I think as, as coaches or as someone myself who's trying to cultivate this idea of working on the mind, yes, there's a responsibility to open the door, but also there's a, a skill in regard to knowing when to expose someone to it as well. Um, and yeah, yeah it sounds like a, a really good thing that, that you did there. I had one other thing was back in Australia through the um, Australian Institute of Sport and Victorian Institute of Sport, we had some really high caliber um, sports psychologists. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of I probably really wasn't ready to absorb it or listen and or I just didn't connect with them. And in my head, I thought, well, I don't connect with them. Years later, I came across, um, well, you probably know him, Mike Way, the coach of Jonathan and, and Power and Graham Riding and those, those characters from Canada. Mike's beautiful. Mike's Love amazing. Him. Yeah, his work is really powerful. Oh, he's awesome. And... Mike just had a way that I could also listen to him and hear him. No matter what he said, I could hear it. It wasn't just words. It went in. Then he said, I'll tell you what, you need to go to my brother, Ken, who's mm-hmm. a sports psychologist. I went, oh, okay. Ken was wonderful. Same sort of personality as Mike. And he got, he's the first sports psychologist that really got to me. And I, I was able to... Put it this way, it was um, British Open one time. I was a lunatic this particular event. Everything had gone wrong. Uh, Ken, uh, sorry, um, Ken was able to settle me down and bring me back to some form of normality so I actually could play the event and nice. get through it. And nice. so that was when I thought, ah, some of this stuff works. <laughs> So I'd like to maybe understand a bit more about your inner voice, you know, the, the, the language you speak to yourself in. Can you talk on that and what, what the tone and the language of this was like when you were competing? I found a word that worked for me and it was as simple as fight. So it comes back to that. If I play to the best of my ability, the result will come. And, you know, the whole 
the standard thing you always get told in sports psychology, you know, one point at a time and it ain't over till it's over and, you know, the rally's not ended till the ball bounces twice, all those things. And once again, I it took a little bit of time for that stuff to really make sense. And my simple word was fight. So I could have had a rally and it was a terrible rally, whatever, I lost it. And I'd just sit back and remind myself, fight. Mm. And I'd like restart every time. I had one other thing that I did and it was the beginning of me trying to work out my head. And it was actually playing my very good friend, Liz Irving, and it was in Hong Kong Worlds. And um, once again, I, I believed I could beat Liz, but she was ranked higher than me. She, oh, anyway, she was really highly ranked at the time. And I had to, to bring myself back to the moment. So I'm right-handed every rally. And at the end of the rally, I would just I'd touch my face and sort of like bring my thought processes back to here. And then I'd serve. Okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay. And it was just helped me come back to the moment right then. And in my head, the score was, you know, love all every time. And, uh, you know, I might have got to 8-3, and I'm, this is old scoring, and it might have got to 8-3, but it was love all, you know, finish the game. And um, I ended up beating her three love and once again played some great squash. So they're just little things I learned along the way. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I love triggers and cues and words and, and the language of our inner voice and a big thing I'm, I'm trying to help my players with is first to become aware of your inner voice, because sometimes that inner voice, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be friends with that person. The way sometimes that inner voice can speak to you, like you're, you're, you're an idiot, you're rubbish. How, how, what are you doing playing that shot? And I think if, if youngsters can become aware first, they can hopefully put in some interventions that can reframe that tone and that language of that inner voice. And then secondly, yeah. picking up on, on your cues and your triggers, you know, you know, touching your nose and centering yourself. I'm curious to know, did you get any help along the way with that type of stuff or was it a process of self-discovery? No, a couple of those, and in, in all honesty, nearly all of everything I've just said was was my self-discovery. And tragically, it took me till a bit older to figure it out. Um, probably if I was able to open my mind and listen, I may have worked that out earlier <laughs> and maybe have you know, won a few more great titles or something. But once again, I don't regret it, but... Um, mm. 
yeah, it was it was really interesting learning those things along the way and figuring it out and then realizing, oh, geez, that worked. I should try that one again, sort of thing. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so, sounds like you're being a bit harsh on yourself, you know, five times world champion and British Open two times. So that yeah. that leads me on to my next bit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see if you can reflect a little bit. So as I've alluded to, five times world champion, British Open twice, Commonwealth gold winner, 65 titles on the on the Whisper Tour. So I don't know where you want to start with this, but are you able to recall and relive with us some of your better wins or matches that stand out and how mental toughness may have played a part in this? Yeah, too funny. There's uh, so many of them are so different. So the 96 Worlds was the one where I recovered from my um, wisdom tooth and best squash of my life because I was just so relaxed. 97 was playing my nemesis, Michelle Martin, in Sydney. And um, it went to five and uh, I just remember this one rally. We were in a routine. She was hitting a shot down the wall. This is my take on it. Her story is probably completely different. We're hitting down the back wall and we'd been going up and down, up and down. And sort of the theme of the match was up and down, up and down, up and down. But I popped in a boast and I think I managed to get just enough hold or flick on it she ran into me going to the back wall and I've hit just a boast. I'm like, ah, wow. and it was one of those, I think I've got you. But, and I was able to hang on to that and then run with it. And I won the match. Yay. I won the worlds in Australia. That was awesome. Nice. 98 by the sounds, sorry, by the sounds of a boast in all essence, that like it's such an interesting that that was the domino effect to maybe more self-belief or just something that happened. So yeah, really, really good. That. It, it upset her mind because mm. she went the wrong way and, that you know, I think it just triggered something in her head and just upset her that little bit and threw her off. Um, 98 was Germany. I was 2 1 up. Uh, I tripped on Michelle's foot. In my opinion, it was should have only been a let. The ref gave um, her a stroke or whatever. I've ended up sliding across my bum. Um, it was enough to disturb my head. I lost the, the fourth game, but I, I was adamant I was going to win this match, absolutely adamant. But it upset me, threw me off my game, lost the game. My head exploded. So this is where none of my mental stuff worked. Um, I was 8-2 down, and this became a bit of a famous match where um, uh, at 8-2 down I went, oh, well, you know what, I've lost, and... I'll just make it as hard as I can for it. So I just thought, hit everything to the back and make sure every ball's up and in court and don't make a mistake. Oh, hand out 2-8, 3-8, 8 hand out 8-4, hand out or stroke whatever, 4-8, 5-8-6-8. Next thing you know, it's 8-all. Wow. Uh, funny rally happened. She somehow ended up 9-8. I got it back. Same again. But every time I was receiving, I had the same conversation. Make it as hard as I can for her, no mistakes. And it was every rally, same conversation, nine all. Next thing I know, I won 10-9 the fifth of the world championship. Standing ovation in the crowd. They all went ballistic. Um, so that one was special. Wow. Can I just talk about that one a tiny bit more? Because I think there's there's a little bit to unpack in that. Um, just can you say again, what, what what was that tone of the inner voice like? Definitely not defeatist by any stretch, but the odds are stacked massively against you. Was that word fight coming in? And, and, and how did you how did you get yourself to that point? I think it was the same as what happened in 96. It was like, <sighs> okay. all that was gone. Because prior to that, 
I'm playing a drive down the wall and a boast that would hit the tin. I'm like, how did you hit the tin on that? You know, I'm throwing away points. I'd hit a cross court sort of semi lob and I've hit it out of court. I'm like, where, where, where's your squash ability just disappeared to? So I'm losing points ridiculously easy. And I just remember, make this as hard as you can. All pressure had gone. Pressure was back on her. It got to 5-8. I'm serving from the left box. I just happened to glance at her, as you do every time, just to check they're ready. And I could see her eyes had widened. And I'm like, interesting. Nice. I just kept having that conversation. And I could tell she started to get tense and I'm just relaxed. Mm. And that's how I got back in. Brilliant. And, and you can just imagine that the turmoil going on in her mind and, you know, that momentum swing. Nuts as well. Like mine was nuts to get to 8-2, but she, she's one serve away mm. and her head would have exploded. Amazing. Um, any other reflections on some of these other big matches? Um, yep. Uh, winning in Melbourne in 2001, I managed to get myself into a bit of a, I call it almost a trance where, I just did everything for me, about me, what I needed. And just all my conversations worked perfectly. I, I was calm. I played the best squash of my life. I won all my matches, three love, um, just like efficient. Mm-hmm. Everything was just absolutely bang on. And that would be the best tournament of my life. And luckily for me, um, well, I bet in Malaysia, and it was that whole perfect relaxing and Melbourne's my hometown. So I won in my hometown, which is, mm. and I think that was another reason why I had to find that calmness because it was home and mm-hmm. it felt like my destiny. I mm. had to win in Melbourne. If I didn't, I would have quit on the spot Ooh. and um, I won it. And that's, but that's, that's a, that, to, to someone else that that can just expand massively into this big pressure sitting on the shoulders, but sounds like you, really cultivated and worked hard on your um, arousal levels, you know, like knowing that you might be going up here with your, the the stories you're telling yourself or the stories people are going to have about you in Melbourne, but you were so good at channeling and tapping into your relaxation point. Would you say that was one of your biggest strengths tapping into that? Yep. I walked around not with purpose, but as if it was a beautiful sunny day. So I was able to just, you know, I wasn't in a stress to get to the court. I would, walk to the get get to the court in my just comfortable pace so I made sure everything I did with the timing was I had the time to mm. and be like this and I just had a set routine warm-up you know um so that was great um my last worlds was playing Natalie Granger Natalie Poor at the time and um the, well this one's a really long story please go do for it want- this is this is super interesting I love it if you've got the time. This is a long story. So prior to this, I've already won Commonwealth Games, um, which in itself was uh, what happened at Com Games 2002 was Australia were expected to dominate the whole Com Games across every sport. Here they are in Australia. They've named me as a definite gold medal winner. They've got Kathy Freeman, Ian Thorpe, all these amazing athlete names across all sports, Sarah Fitzgerald. I'm like, oh, God, I'm in the paper. I'm back page. Uh, the press are coming to me rather than me having to go to the press. Um, massive pressure. So I had a bit of a mental 
this is once again where the mental side had let me down, but I was able to get enough control on it. Um, and one of those, when I won, I was ready to retire because I would have hated. Can you imagine it being someone like a Kathy Freeman and what she did at 2000 Olympics? I had mine is this big compared in squash to what she went through. I wanted to retire. I can only imagine what the pressure she would have felt. Yeah. And, and how did you, it sounds like you, you were able to find a way to either not ignore the pressure, but, but use it as fuel. How, how were you able to manage that? Um, I, I had it under control for a bit. I lost control of it in the fourth. Um, but, you know, once again, I saw Ken Way, the mental, the sports psychologist, he, he was able to get me to a bit of a calm point, uh, which was enough for me to get on court and, and play. But luckily my opponent, she her head exploded just at the right time and allowed me to come through to win to win the match. And the most massive sigh of relief I think I've ever had. Oh wow. Um, to the point where I was thinking, I need to retire. But I also knew I had one more thing, which was um playing for Australia at the World Teams. And it was just a funny thing. The timing was um had to go to the Worlds and I'm playing Granger. Um, it was in the Middle East. I didn't want to go. All the other players arrived two days early. I was only flying in the day before. England had terrible storm, terrible storm, where planes weren't landing, planes certainly weren't taking off. I get to Heathrow. I've just checked in. My bag's gone. The World Open Trophy's gone through as well because I won it 2001. I had to take it to the 2002. Bags are gone. I get through customs, I look up at the board and it says cancel from top to bottom of the board. So I'm sitting there going, that's not good. <laughs> How am I going to get there? My match was the next day, 1 p.m. Um, Qatar time. I think it's, what, three hours, three or four hours time difference or something from Qatar to England. And um, anyway, I'm on the phone and I'm president. I'm world number one and I'm the, um, the reigning champion. Right, I'm defending my title. So I've got all this stuff going on. I ring uh, the association and a few other people and I say, look, this is what's happening. I'm, I don't think I can get there. Within the rules, you're allowed to change the match to this, from the same day from my scheduled at one to last match of the day. So right. that at least they allowed it to be pushed back to 7 p.m. Anyway, Heathrow slowly, slowly gets organised. Um I finally get to the desk, but there's thousands of people at Heathrow who are stranded. I finally get to the desk. I said, give me any plane to the Middle East and I will figure out how to get to Qatar. So they managed to stick me on a um, flight to uh, Dubai. Uh, there's a whole lot of story behind that, but I eventually get on this plane. Um, I land in Dubai. Customs are looking at me and I said, look, I just need a one-way ticket to Qatar. And he's like, why? And... He says, where's your luggage? I went, uh, Heathrow. And he's looking at me like he's not going to let me go. But luckily, back in the day, I could carry my racket bag. So I've got racket shoes and some bits and pieces. Luckily, in there, I had the tournament program. Nice. And he's about to say, no, I can't do that. I can't authorise. I'm not going to. And I, I went, hang on, dig around in my bag, and I pull out the tournament program. And I went, that's yeah, me. Um... <laughs> Can you see? And he goes, oh, and then he, he started to believe me. He goes, fine. So he put me on a plane. Off I go. Wow. 
I arrive, my baggage is lost. I, I go to play my first match. Back at Heathrow, I've had to buy a shirt. I get to the tournament. I'm buying Lee Beechel's uh, shorts, Nick Taylor's T-shirt, <laughs> Isabel Stowe's bra and Tanya <laughs> Bailey's skirt. Um, I get no to my more. first match at 7 p.m. I'm in uh, a mixture of people's clothes and um, I pull my shoes out of the bag and I discover I've got a left and a right, but one is old, one is new. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was the nature of the tournament. I got through to the final. Wow. My bags finally turn up on finals day. I beat Granger. I grab my bags, get straight back on a plane back to England. Amazing. Wow. So that, I remember that picture. I think you went up to the camera and you put the big number five hand on it. It was quite a, quite a famous picture. Yeah, I love that picture. And you could just see the both like joy, determination on your face. And just thinking of all those crazy factors, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles story there pretty much. Did that in a way relax you, you think? And you just accepted what was happening or did you? Yeah. I pretty well, I pretty well was ringing Jonah Barrington, uh, my manager, the tournament organizer, and also saying, that's it guys. I, I, you know, my head was partly done anyway after winning common games. And I went, you know what? It is what it is. I'm, I won't be there. And they're like, you must make every effort and you get on that plane sort of thing. So by the time I got there, it was just like, oh. And when I pulled my shoes out and they're wrong, I was just, oh, God, you know, what else can be wrong? Oh, there's there's two other things. Um, I realised I borrowed Tanya's skirt, but I didn't have any proper squash undies. And all I was wearing was a G-string. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> In the change room going, well, this is completely inappropriate. Isabel, what undies have you got on? And she's looked at me with her little French accent and she's like, what? <laughs> I said, get your knickers off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you, well, what was that, the first round still? You won the first round in Isabel Stowe's knickers. Brilliant. They, these were undies, not squash undies, but undies. But at least my dignity was covered up. And um then luckily my manager arrived a day later with some clothes for me, but I was still, he forgot to bring any practice gear. I'm wearing Nick Taylor's and uh, Lee Beechel's clothes all week. Um, and then the other thing that happened was in the final, uh, the stadium was chock-a-block full and the air conditioning couldn't cope because it's 50 degrees outside. And there was, I don't know, however many people the stadium held. And um, the, the court got really slippery, everything from the floor to the side walls. And Granger, good on her, she dealt with it really well. She's chopping in drop shots and little trickle boasts and my head doesn't play that way. It's just not the nature of my game and I struggled to get my head, head around it. And um, the rules of squash are both players have to agree to make the change, whether that's the ball or come mm -hmm. off the court or whatever. And Granger... Good on her. She didn't agree to it. The tournament organiser couldn't confirm it. And finally, um, I was two love up. Granger won the third because she was putting in little drops and all sorts of reverse boasts and all sorts of stuff. And you couldn't move. You couldn't push off the tee. And a boast literally became a drive because it was so wet. Yeah. Um, so she won the third. My head is exploding because everything I've learnt for 30 years of my life wasn't working. You know, a boast wasn't travelling the angle it should and a drive was skidding and um, and it got to about 
two all, I think, in the fourth. And Granger finally fell over badly on the floor. And that's when the tournament director, she sort of went, yeah, Al, because that hurt. And the tournament director finally had to go, cut. So we've come off in the middle of the World Open final at about two all in the fourth, cleared the stadium, pumped up the air conditioning. Half an hour later or an hour later, we've all come back in, resumed the match. About three or four points later, Granger and I are battling because, of course, her confidence is up. I'm a bit rattled. And uh, finally, I win a couple of tough points, and that's when I was able to go, I'm back again. Mm. And so that was how I won the Worlds. Wow, that story is just is one for the ages. I cannot wait for people to hear that and take out what, what they can from it. And it just sounds like you it was almost a perfect storm in regard to all of your life experiences prior to that point lended itself to you being able to perform with arguably no one would be able to perform with what they got presented, what you did. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting having that timeline of what you did, you know, even from growing up and your parents and, you know, becoming president of, of Whisper. And, you know, it, I don't know, am, am I assuming this, but it, it might have been a correlation there that it just all came together because of those previous experiences. Probably. And, you know, you know, everything that went wrong, I ended up relaxed. I got through the tournament and finally with the final, um, I knew in my heart I could beat Granger and I just needed this one more match to get through. Mm. And um, I was able to channel it enough. I mean, what happened, I was going to win and then the court conditions changed. And luckily I, I was managed to get a grip on it again and I took off. It was like four all or something and I took off to seven four and then ended up winning the game, I think about nine four. Mm. And uh, but it took those few points that were really hard. And I think Granger missed an all-important drop shot. And um, it was just enough to help me go, okay, and need to pick up my rhythm and get some, get some, um, mm. you know, get some of my, my game flowing and off I went again. Mm. So you might have alluded to this, but when you're on the verge of winning those big matches and it's right there and you know, you hear a lot of athletes, you know, that, you know, the voice comes in and they crumble a little bit and they are thinking that they've, they've, they've won, you know, they're at the point of so far ahead. What was this like for you mentally? What was your inner voice saying on those verge of verge of those big matches? Well, luckily I've learned so much enough along the way. It, and the, the old adage of it ain't over till it over is so, so true. And mm. You know, you're serving at, I don't know, eight four, and you have to literally wait for the referee to say match to Fitzgerald because another story. I was in Malaysia and I'm playing Michelle Martin. I'm 2-1 up. Uh, I think it was 8-4. She hit a terrible shot up the middle of the court. Um, so I'm on the tee. I put my racket back. She's literally eating my racket in, in, her, in the backswing. And um, I've, I've literally moved my racket from right hand to left to go shake her hand. Wow. And Marie said, yes, let. And I, I'm, she's looked at me and just sort of raised her eyebrows as if to say, wow, you know. And I just looked at her and then looked at the ref and I'm like, what? that's not possible. Anyway, lost the plot, um, lost the game, lost the match. No. And uh, head had gone because I'd, I'd won. I'd gone. Right. And I'm doing that and I'm like, 
And then I was in just such shock. Um, so I really did learn from that. Nothing is over until the ref says match. Mm -hmm. Well, that's super powerful. You're able to reflect on that and possibly a very hard lesson in the moment, but could have been a massive benefit and a massive weapon later on in your career. Would you say that that there was a link there? Yep, definitely. And, uh, you know, the referee, uh, he apologized to me later um, because he said, I didn't want to give a stroke on match ball. It was, it was the Malaysian Open. It wasn't the World Open or anything, but you know, that's points, it's prize money, and it's a title. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his name was Mark Toe, and it became known as the Toe-let. <laughs> and, um, and he apologised because he he learnt from that that it doesn't matter whether it's the first point or match ball, if it's a stroke, it's a stroke, or whatever the correct decision is. Yeah. And, you know, I was able to sit down and have a beer with him at some stage, and, you know, <laughs> it was a day later or whatever, I, I spoke to him about it. I didn't mm-hmm. hold it against him and... Um, mm. but yeah, you, you learn a lot from that sort of stuff. And, yeah. uh, yeah, and, if you learn from every loss, then you're not learning anything. You've got to learn from all that stuff. Totally. I, I think that that's, um, a great attitude to cultivate. It's, it's a, it's a great expression. I never lose. I either win or I learn, you know, I, I love that, that, that quote and exactly that every loss is feedback and every, every bad situation is feedback into how you can improve and how you can get better. And it sounds like, you you had that you were you were taking the data from the losses and those bad experiences reflecting on them and then putting things in place that it didn't happen again um and i'm curious to know did, did you ever you maybe mentioned this but did you ever do any visualization practice in preparation for your matches yeah um i'm just trying to think of the event and i can't think what it is right now but i can remember doing it and it was the discussion point was Things like, um, you know, I can picture my my drive going to the back wall and landing, you know, this high sort of above the, the floor, like above the nick. I mean, into the nick second bounce, uh, these days players can cut that off before it gets there. So I was trying to just keep it low. And, you know, certain squat glass backs have the stripes and mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, for the um For the reflection, visual. yeah. And my, my main thing was I just kept it easy was make sure the ball's down under those stripes all the time into the corner, make sure my width is wide. And I was playing Cassie Jackman in Germany one time and I'd had such strong thoughts about it. Um, I think I won the first game about 9-1 or 9-love because I didn't make one mistake. Um, I was able to hit everything exactly where I needed it to go sort of thing. Um, it didn't last the whole match, unfortunately, but I won the first game really well. And I was like, blimey, that works. And, but it's funny, like everything we've talked about, I've realized different things worked at different times in my life. It's changed, things changed. And I I kept having to find bits and pieces of all of them that worked for me. Not the one thing would work all the way through always. Um, And it was just simple things like, you know, not making errors or, keeping it straight because you knew that they were good on the volley through the middle, keep it straight. And if you go cross, it's got to go wide. That's just Mm. simple squash, basic logic of how to play. But if you don't do it properly, you, you get caught out. So you've got to, you've got to make it right. 
No, and I, I love to hear that you have done visualizations and you find they're impactful because that's that's quite a big part of what I'm trying to cultivate with squash minders, give players the access to experiment with visualizations go yes you've got to have the training you've got to back it up in the self-belief but you know there's a, there's a lot of good studies about from athletes and you know papers and journals talking about the power of visualization and what it does to your mind and your attitude and your behaviors and your confidence level so yeah like like hearing you that you practice it is, is really encouraging so um but when i when i knew i was going to chat with you um I told some of my players and they were flipping over the moon. So there's a few questions I would like to ask you if that's okay from players directly from some, some of the juniors. And they were just so inspired that, that we were going to have a chat today. So one of the first questions is, and again, I think these are really cool questions. Um, when losing many points in a row, what did you do to stop the momentum? Uh, always take, and I don't mean take a step back, but go back to the basics. That's happened for a reason. Uh, and for me, it was always about going back to my basics, which was my drives and deep into the corners and then remind myself how to get forward. Um, one of the strengths of my game was volleys. I loved it. Volley anything was my thing. Uh, so I'd work out how to put them in the back and not stick in the bowstore or something too early. So I had a chance to move up, get forward and get in front of them. But it was all, it was always just go back to basics. And, you know, if you've lost too many in a row, is it I've hit the tin or is it I've hit it too low, too hard and they're picking it off because my length is wrong? You know, you've got to work that stuff out. And something, if you've lost too many in a row, you've got to change something. Hmm. Good. You've got to work that. Yep. Solid, solid advice. And yeah, it, it's with that as well, like saying that because I, I reinforce that point and what I then try to get my players to do is actually you know what spend three minutes visualizing that visualizing things are going catastrophe is happening and you've lost these points but actually imagine what you're going to do so you know what when it arrives in a match it's not a big surprise you go actually I've rehearsed this in my mind and I'm going back to those basics so it's not just like a, a flick of a switch in a match there's actually a, a preempting to that so yeah no I think really good advice there and next question is um any advice on how to be able to handle my nerves when competing um I'm not sure if you did get nervous when you were playing but any advice on nerves for juniors uh I did um I did have some issues with nerves but not to the point where I you know glass glass arm sort of stuff um for me, once again, it was also it was always just reminding myself those things I was saying before. Play to the best of your ability; the result will come because it takes pressure off you. You're nervous because you're, oh, I want to win, and I can beat little Betty, and and oh, you know, whatever. I got to get to the next round. You're looking too far ahead. Be in the moment and just play. Mm. And um, you know, because you don't get nervous when you practice at your home club. So why? And, you know, I, I remember having conversations with people about when we were training, like I've had a bunch of international girls stay at my house. They would come, they'd train, we'd get up, they'd eat brekkie, they'd go practice, they'd go sit down, have a coffee, you know, go have some games in the afternoon, home, dinner, watch some TV, maybe have a glass of wine if they're, if that's, they're so inclined to go to bed. The moment they get to a tournament, they change it all. They don't have a glass of wine. They're like, well, I've got to do this and it's all. So I'm like, that's not what you do 24-7 every other day of the week. So why are you emphasising the tournament so heavily with this stress factor of all these things that you don't actually live like that day to day? 
make yourself back to something that's comfortable, you know. That's and you've got to, and, you know, all of being normal is mm. that's when you play your best squash. Yeah, uh, really powerful advice. And, and you know, we know each other a bit, but actually having this really deep conversation with you, it has surprised me about how much you tap into the relaxation side. I, you know, maybe preconceived ideas, you know, one of the greatest players thinking actually there might be a, a slight um, aggressive tone to what you're doing and a slight um, forward dominating tone. But it sounds the opposite for you. It sounds like you really tap into your relaxation side of things. Yeah, but what I mean by relaxation is... Um... I'm actually firing on pure aggression, though, under there. If you could hear what the conversation in my head is, there's a whole lot of colourful language, which is pure aggression of I'm going to get in there and I'm going to hit the crap out of that ball and I'm going to volley everything and I'm going to stick it in the corner and, and I'm going to get that ball back and this is what I'm going to do. And if I lose a point, there's a bit of language going on to, you know, get myself angry. I, I was an angry player, but I did it not not, oh, my God, you know, and swearing my guts out like this. I'd be, like, swearing, but I'm, it's aggressive, but in a calm aggression type thing. But that, like, does that's, that well, it does, but but I've, I'd like to unpack that a bit because that's fascinating because I went through different phases and I work with a sports psychologist about arousal levels. And, yeah, at one point I it was so aggressive here and it was translating into my performance. And then my language and stuff started to chill a lot, but then I would be too lax as well. I'd have like a lax thing where it sounds like there's a bit of a separation there. And you, you sound like you did so well with separating that, that inner voice that was driving you, pushing you, swearing at you really driven, but actually on the outside, you were, you were ice cold and you were nice and chilled. How do you think you were able to separate those things? I remember my coach in early days, once again, playing an event where I should have won. Oh, no, I did end up winning it. And this is where we discovered how to deal with me. I was playing this match and I'd hit the ball so well in morning practice and the week before. I was uh, Everything was just sweet. And I get to the tournament and my coach had said to me, um, you know, you're playing really well, your backhand's beautiful at the moment and blah, blah, blah. And it was reminding me how good I was and why I was ranked one. And, and I went on there going, yeah, I'm number one, you know, I'll be all right. And anyway, I was losing this, but I lost the particular game. I think maybe I won the first, lost the second. Um, my manager was so annoyed at me because he knew I should have won three love. And he's literally come out and gone ballistic at me and kind of pushed me type thing. And I've spun around like pure anger on my face. But it, it made me angry and I, I had that ability to channel the anger into the ball, not into what's going on with me. I hit the ball harder. It made me step forward. I volleyed everything. I hunted the ball. I wanted to volley everything. And, and it made me who I am. I'd walk to the box and serve. As soon as the rally was over, I picked up the ball. I'm at the box ready to serve and the, my opponents barely had time to turn around. That's, it was like this. Nice. And uh, I loved the, the pace of it and that didn't stop until the game was over and you could sort of, <sighs> I'm like that. And then they learned, my coach realised after that, they've got to actually talk to me like this. I'm not playing well. It's telling me what to do and keep right. doing yeah. And, and I, I know a little bit of, of Mike Johnson and he's such a lovely, calm, relaxed character. And maybe he had a bit of an influence on, on even the way you were so relaxed. Would you say he had quite a nice influence on you? Yeah. Look, 
you'd go back to Caversham and you're in such a happy place there. Everything was great. He, he is he is a very calm, gentle man. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because he was at the time, and this is just at that moment, because he talked to me and relaxed and we thought that was the right way to treat me until my manager got pissed off. Um, and that's when we learned, right, this is actually how we need to deal with me. It doesn't work for the, the next person in line. But um, so, yeah, we, we changed how we talked to me after that and everything was pure aggression at me. Right, you, you hit, you're winning down the backhand wall. You keep pumping that backhand wall and you do it 10 times and you do it until the ball bounces twice. Have you got it? Yep. Yep. Right, I'm on. And it was right. that and, and yeah, uh, it, it just it just shows that you 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 know yourself and and that that's a big thing as well i think with with athletes is you know know your personality know your character know what makes you tick and and keep cultivating it and it sounds like it, it's a it's a process of experimentation you're going to get some things wrong and i think you mentioned it earlier there's a process of evolution as well like once you figured something out it doesn't mean that that's going to stay for the rest of your career there might need to be a, a check-in and, and and tweak it a little bit so um two more questions from some of the players um how do you start effectively? One of my players struggles with starting well and then they only, you know, get going when they five, six love down. Any advice on starting well? Um, well, once again, it's finding for me, it was finding that routine. So I already had that for me, my anger, my aggression already ready to go because of my warm up and the conversation, the self conversation I had. You can't, you can't afford to, especially now with the new scoring, you can't afford to walk into a match, not be awake and you're six love down. And mm. it's just, you can't do it. It's, um, you're too far gone. So you've got to be warmed up, have that mental state. Uh, for me, it was that aggression. Um, and it's, it's right there from, from love all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, great advice. I think, yeah, that's that, that pre-preparation. Um, and last question from, from one of the juniors, any advice thinking more now, COVID situation, on struggling with motivation, lack of tournaments, not knowing when they'll play next? How, how could you speak on that? Good, good question. Um, the hardest part is self-motivation, really. Um, mm-hmm. I'm retired, so I haven't had to figure that one out. <laughs> but, you know, some of our kids have, um, you know, gone out and hit balls against sides of buildings, um, gone running. And, you know, for me, whenever I was wound up or whatever, going for a good run and a bit of a workout always got rid of any of that frustration. But, you know, it's this whole coronavirus business, it's out of our hands, hard to say. Um, mm. If you can self-motivate, that's the first step to actually becoming a dedicated uh and and champion really because if you can motivate that means you've got self-motivate means you've got that ability to go to the next level and in mm. you becoming a better player because you want to win you're determined yeah i i think i think and what i'm trying to get the message across this is an actual an opportunity to to grow that side of you right now you don't have tournaments you can't interact with people but hey what can you control and what can you do and you know if you can grow and foster this idea of self-motivation and self-drive you know it's only going to pay off later down the line when we can compete um so sarah you have been overly generous with your time it's been unbelievable having these chats these conversations but i've got probably a couple more two more little quick things to talk about if that's okay if you've got a few more minutes um so in closing one of my questions that i always like to wrestle with what would you say is better to have talent 
or work ethic? Uh, probably work ethic. Um, the talent's the added bonus. I mean, you could have all the talent in the world, but if you're not fit, there's only so far it'll get you. Mm-hmm. If you have the work ethic, uh, it means you are happy to be there till nine all in the fifth and fight your guts out. Um, hopefully the talent can get you over the line. And, you know, that's that's something you can work on mm-hmm. is the talent and improving your shots. Um, you know, there's, there's been a number of players where you can see this raw talent compared to ones that have the work ethic. And sometimes when you look back at the history, the ones with the work ethic have won more titles than the talent. So mm-hmm. um, it's wonderful having the talent, but, the tragic thing is so many of them don't channel it for long enough, mm-hmm. consistently enough, and if they did, they would be amazing to watch. Yeah, and well, maybe, I don't know how much he does train, but Nick Kyrgios comes to mind, you know, super talented, but, but you know, I think behind the scenes he's probably training. I think Jonathan Power had that almost he liked maybe people to think about him as like really talented, but lazy, but you know what, behind the scenes he, he was putting the work in. So, you know, raw talent is great. Well, I think one of the sure signs is if they're always injured and they play one tournament and you don't see them for a while, they're not probably got, not always the case, but there's a, possibly a bit of work ethic that's not there mm. to stop the injuries. Or and I mean, I know that's a very generalisation, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, Nick Matthew didn't have a lot of injuries. He worked really hard um, and he was fit. Yep. Um, I'm not saying you didn't have the talent or anything at all. Um, there's no way I'm saying that. But if you're working hard, your body is in great shape to handle anything and, and do the hours of uh, batch that they yeah. did that or did do. So in closing, what are you, what are you up to now and, and what's next for Sarah Fitzgerald? What, what can you paint a picture for us of, of where things are? You've alluded to obviously the squash court building. You play a lot of Masters stuff. But, yeah, where, where are things going for you at the moment? All those things. So I'm, I'm on. I'm vice president of the World Squash Federation. So I still get to be a part of the whole squash scene, which is wonderful because it's been 30 years of my life. So I've got friends all around the world. So it's wonderful to see them. Um, and you know, I'm passionate about the game. So giving something back is still there within me. Um, yeah, Masters is something I've really, really enjoyed, but just because of coronavirus and how it's hit us here in Australia, I really haven't played since March 2019, 2020, sorry. So tragically, uh, I haven't hit a ball in a long time, which, oh, I sit here and I wonder how the body will cope. Um, but, and I, I'm also now president of Squash Victoria, my state. So I'm still heavily involved in the sport. So even if, at some stage, I don't end up physically on the court. I'm involved in the sport. And it's been my life. I love it. I wouldn't change a thing. Amazing. Listen, Sarah, the more people like you stand the game, the more you give back to the game. And you know, hearing how much you gave back as a youngster is just it's just so inspiring and motivational. And hopefully those that are listening to this can take a few leaves out of, of your book in a way. And I have enjoyed this immensely, just you know, talking about some of your matches and these big matches, you know. I probably had another 15 questions I could have digged down with and gone with there, but <laughs> conscious of your time and, but I really appreciate it. Um, but hopefully it gives us an opportunity to maybe loop back and have, have a chat again at some point. And I, I, I know the, the people I work with and the, the players I might listen to this will really enjoy it. So massively appreciated. Thank you very much, Sarah. 
You're welcome. Lovely seeing you again. It's been a long time. Presence. Process. Persistence. The essence of Squash Mind. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.